Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Katie J. Today, we have Sarah Wu. Sarah is the current director and educational curator at the Punta Mona Center. The Punta Mona Center is actually on the opposite side of Costa Rica than from where we are, but Sarah is going to be coming over closer to where we are for Envision Festival because she is also one of the co-founders of Envision Festival. So we dive into so many fun topics in this interview, so I'm so excited to share it with you. If you wouldn't mind doing me a favor, stay until the end. I have a big special announcement about this podcast and the future of where it's going to go. Ooh, so exciting. So stay until the end and you'll get some more awesome updates about what is to come. Without further ado, let's go ahead and chat with Sarah. Hi, Sarah. How are you today? I'm very good, Katie. How are you? I'm fabulous. We had a a bit of a crazy night last night. I woke up to sparks flying from my roof in the middle of the night. Um, Oh my gosh. Yeah. We had a loose cable that we had had to handle, Um, but it was, and it was raining too. So thank goodness because everything was really wet, but it could have been really bad. Yeah, it can be a really bad fire. It's scary, especially in the home. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm glad you so, woke up, though. I know. Yeah, I it was it was a crazy coincidence. Well, I don't believe in coincidences, but it was crazy that it happened because I had gone to sleep at like five o'clock yesterday, and so I by midnight I had had a full night's sleep and was wide awake when I heard it. So it worked out nicely. Wow! Wow! Yeah. So let me just get started with an icebreaker question. And the one I'm going to ask you is what is a book that everyone needs to read and why? Ooh, okay. (laughs) So many, there's so many books that I love. Okay. Um, I'd say the one book that I come back to the most that I've read, reread, and actually listened to an audio book is The Mists of Avalon. And so this book written by Marion Zimmer Bradley, it is um, in some ways like a a neo-pagan Bible to me. It goes deep into the feminine perspective on the Arthurian legend, um, which is a take on uh, the the reborn king, the reborn god king, you know, which we see a lot throughout mythology. Mm-hmm. Um, and King, king Arthur, you know, was like the once and future king in the Celtic and um, you know Great Britain kind of mythology. And there's a story of Morgan Le Fay, who is this like evil witch. And so it's told from her perspective and her training through the goddess mysteries and her um, just life and loves and passions and and how you know women were spinned out to be demonized and this really interesting perspective on the shift from paganism into Christianity and how it was peaceful and then how it shifted into dogma and all this stuff. And so it's a really beautiful book again about goddess mysteries and, and just female archetypes and life. And it's one of those books that I I come back to probably every other year I'll read it again. And it's a huge book. And like I said, I also have it on audio. So sometimes I'll just put it on an audio and listen to little blips of it or I'll open up in my, I, I read off of like a Kindle. And so I'll open up to my Kindle and I like reread my notes on it. It just drops so much wisdom. It's it's really beautifully written as well. If you like, you know, kind of um, uh, fantasy, medieval philosophy, <laughs> paganism. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. yeah. I, that's definitely something I'm going to add to my 
my book list as well. It's a beautiful book. In, so when you were describing it, you mentioned um, the word witch. And when we were introduced every email, you were introduced as the resident witch. And so <laughs> I want to know what that, what that word means to you. Sure. Um, well, you know, we're through, through this awakening that's been happening. You know, there, there's been multiple awakenings in humanity, just as we've had multiple mass extinctions, we've had multiple mass awakenings. And this wave of awakenings, you know, happened 60s, the whole hippie movement and everything. Well, um, you know, I was born in the early 80s. I'm not a millennial. I'm actually Gen Y. It's funny because millennial didn't exist when I was a child. Even though I think people try to put me into that, but I'm like, I'm Gen Y still. Anyways, so throughout that, um, I was still, that being said, I was still one of those kids that played outside and spent a lot of my time outdoors in my yard in upstate New York and um, would connect with elementals, which were, I called them trolls. I've always had my, my cats, my animals, and this really deep connection to Mother Nature and this sense of great change in the world. Like I remember being a, a child and imagining deserts turning to oceans and forests turning to deserts and things that like, what, what is that, you know, that a five-year-old sees and in, in your mind's eye and as you're still connected to other levels of existence, you know. Um, and... I was raised, you know, my, my parents were, were, are Catholic. Um, they weren't like strict or anything, but they definitely tried to instill that into us. And so I went to Sunday school and would like hear these stories and believed in whatever truth was there, but also found a lot of dis things I disagreed with. And then, you know, the angry art kid in the nineties in high school and, um, and then when I went into college, I was studying art history and what really medieval and Byzantine art, late antique art, what really came through to me was the Virgin Mary and this concept of the mother of God. And the mother of God to me eventually came like to be who is the mother of God, but it's goddess. And for a lot of people who associate with witch, we do pray to female as well as a masculine divine. There's a, a strong balance there, but we do tend to be a little bit more feminine focused. Um, but I'm not one of those female feminist people who like to put men down. I really believe in great healing that needs to happen for the masculine as well. And so, you know, when I was like 18, 19, um, finding my own path, this concept of uh, earth religion and I read the book The Spiral Dance by Starhawk um, and my sister also we, we we say we came out of the broom closet together so we had this <laughs> real strong solidarity and when I the word witch when I really started to I mean I started to embrace it around that time but I didn't fully come out about it because it was kind of a scary thing um, you know when we look at the history of witchcraft is that there was, you know, a, a Holocaust that happened to women from the 1500s to 1700s, like drastically, the witch crazes, the witch trials. And many countries and, and towns in Europe were in some ways like full, almost fully exterminated their women, especially in Germany and France that are really brutal. And, um, and so as I started to embrace the identity of witch, you know, and it is an identity uh, coming from the United States and of mixed ethnic heritage and don't really have a sense of place or a sense of people. And so the identity of which has really given me a great sense of community in a really broad sense. And to me, the, the root of the word means like the wise, you know, and um, 
And so to me, it's, it's been a community, it's been an identity of, of earth worship and earth stewardship and um, being in service to, to life, really, because women and men who identify through witchcraft, we understand that there's multiple layers to existence and that, you know, in, in, in what we call imminence and that like every, every living being, you know, and systems, you know, it doesn't just have to have a heart or a nervous system, but also the plants and, and water systems and all that, they have a, a potency and a vital force behind them that animates this earth. And we see the earth as a living, breathing, feeling in a different way, uh, super organism that sustains our life and helps our life to thrive. And however way we look at it, we all return back to the soil to animate and give vitality to another living being. And, and, and with that, we are eternal. And so, you know, that for me is what, what witch means. And, you know, bringing that to when, when you say like the resident witch, you know, the village witches concept at Envision, I also see uh, identifying as witch is walking the healing path. And I also call it like the good medicine road, you know, and working to help other people um, try to find a state of balance, a state of wellness and a state of in interconnectedness with, with the living earth. So <laughs> that's what that means to me. I love that. That was so beautiful because I, I too identify as a witch and it's something that um, I'm, I've been struggling with exactly what that means to me. And it sounds like you have a very clear idea of what that means to you, which I love, which is why I wanted to pick your brain about it. Because mm. I started watching um, the, what was it? Like the Sabrina, the Teenage Witch mm -hmm. remake on Netflix. And I was really into it for the first few episodes. And then it just got really dark. And I was like, this is not what, what it means to me. You know, it doesn't need to be about demonic you know, it, like it, can, you know, it can, it absolutely can. But to me, and then in the magic that I am interested in creating, um, which is very, it's similar to yours. I'm going to be studying traditional Chinese medicine starting in the fall. Oh, uh, good. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So for me, it's all about healing, and that wasn't really what I was getting, which I should have known. It was still going to be a Hollywood version. Well, that's that's the thing with media, and when we look at storytelling, and you go even back to like Brothers Grimm and you know, into, and, and even further back to the fall of Adam and Eve and the story of Lilith, you know, who they call a demon, but she was really the woman uh, untethered, you know, and the woman who wouldn't be possessed uh, by a man. And I think that's also another big part of witchcraft is that there's this innate independence and um, radical self-reliance, you know, that we have to cultivate for those of us who identify this way, because we know that with that radical self-reliance and independence, we are the most effective in our communities. And that independence in women, uh, the women that were specifically targeted, you know, in the witch trials were the ones unmarried. They're the ones who were possibly widowed. They were landowners. They were beautiful. They were ugly. They were anything that could be picked on uh, pretty much and seen as, you know, dangerous to society in whatever way. But that danger to society was the female independence and the, and the female power. And so, you know, from storytelling, you know, folklore up to, you know, Hollywood, whatever, um, this demonization of, of women and this misogyny um, is really, really strong in our culture. And like, we try to empower women and we talk about sexual revolution and 
fem women in power, women leaders, all this kind of stuff. And while we want to raise that up, there's a big part of our culture that still wants to suppress that because it's just, it's conditioning over a very long period of time, you know, and that's what's breaking through right now is like, we need to reclaim what it is to be a, a woman in power, you know, and that like a woman in power isn't threatening to life and it's not threatening to dethrone men <laughs> from their power, but, you know, trying to, I think with, for me also with, with the identity identity of which is to, to bring something back into balance between the masculine and the feminine, because there are some branches of witchcraft, which are like men hating, you know, ultra feminists. And then there's the ones like me who are like, no, the, like, these men have been so damaged. They've been conscripted to kill to rape, to murder, to, tell, to be told not to cry, to be told to be a man, like blah, 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 all those stupid stories, you know, that men are told they're like, even in our really conscious men out there, you know, there's these like layers of, of, uh, of, you know, distress patterns and damage also done to them, which they've in turn like harmed the female. And so it's together, you know, and we need to work on this and yeah. So it's, you know, when you see things like, you know, Sabrina Teenage Witch or, you know, what was the other one? Uh, There's one I watched recently, American Horror Story Coven last year, oh you know, which, which, yeah, it was like fun. Stevie Nicks is in it. There's like all these amazing actors. It's like kind of gruesome and demonic, but at the same time, it paints this really negative picture. When you look at even media and Hollywood, like who is the only good witch that you really saw was Glenda mm, <laughs> in mm -hmm. The Wizard of Oz. Like all the rest are like a scary stepmom and you know, Ursula, like the sea witch. It was always like this bad person out there looking to harm people, to steal beauty, to steal power, to steal, you know, fame, to, and, and that's not what it's about, you know, and that's actually what I love about the mists of Avalon is it takes it deep into um, the mysteries. And that's what women really held were, were these deeper mysteries, um, whether it was through like Dionys Dionysus or, you know, uh, from like the Greek, myths and, and rites and you know and the sibyl and the oracle and all that and so it's looking at like women through our reproductive power like we we do have this way to tap into something a little deeper than than men possibly do and that doesn't have to be scary to guys and, and scary to people you know and but it is and that and that's how hollywood likes to to spin it and so it's it's a it's really interesting like um irony you know that's happening in culture right now from trying to raise us up and push us down at the same time absolutely yeah yeah and there's a lot of like you said there's a lot of conscious men out there who want to learn more and who want to be supportive of women in this process of balancing the feminine masculine but they still are so conditioned and understanding that we're all conditioned and we're all working through this together is something that's really important, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it is. So one of the things that you mentioned that you are excited to talk about was um, bioregional appropriate medicine, ethical use of herbs, mushrooms, and entho entheogens. Entheogens, yeah. Entheogens. entheogens. Uh -huh. Can you pick one of those or a few of those and kind of expand on um, I'm really interested in like the ethical use, use of herbs and, and bioregional appropriate medicine. Cause those seems like something that, you know, I've, I've, I'm just not that familiar with. Sure. Well, when we look, when we go back, you know, back, 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 um, humans have had a coevolution with plants. Plants have been here for, you know, it's, it's, it used to be around 400 million years we thought, but 
you know, some evidence is showing that plants and mushrooms possibly came out of the oceans about 700 million years ago. You know, humans have been here for a few million, Homo sapiens. Um, so the plants, you know, as they transformed the entire planet to make it what it is right now and transformed our atmosphere through their life and death cycles, you know, sequestering carbon, releasing oxygen, all that, you know, they, for me, are our greatest ancestors and who, as we try to rewild ourselves or re-indigenize ourselves, tribalize ourselves again, I think that working with plants, not just medicinal plants, but being in touch with soil and being in touch with living beings other than ourselves and other than mammals um, and animals, animal kingdom uh, is a really interesting way and special way to, to reconnect with the earth and reconnect with our, ourselves. And so, you know, we had actually like through the witch trials, actually a lot of our ancestral medicine was destroyed. It was seen as uh, dangerous. It was seen as conspiring with the devil and, and where a lot of the medicine survived was actually with like the Arabic medicine through the middle ages, traditional Chinese medicine, you know, up until the cultural revolution had very deep, varying kind of nuances to, to the medicines depending on the bioregion. With Chinese medicine in particular, like after the Cultural Revolution, it was it was standardized under under Chairman Mao in, in the communist uh, perspective on medicine. So you know that's what we have now with TCM, um, and with Ayurveda too. You know throughout throughout the years, like people developed um, you know the, these medicine systems, and so these medicine systems was a way of understanding the human body, of diagnosing the human body, a way of working with the landscape, with the plants, uh, animals, minerals that were available in your own landscape, within your own bioregion. When we talk about the concept of uh, paradigm, right, or cosmovision, this developed from human beings responding to natural phenomenon, trying to understand, like, why the weather patterns were the way they were, trying to understand the oceans, trying to understand migrations of animals, the seasons of plants, and why certain plants helped us, and why certain plants maybe harmed us, and what foods you could eat, et cetera. And so that's cosmovision, right? That's belief system, that's paradigm. Um, and we were associated with place, specifically with our paradigm for a, a long, long, long time. I mean, age of, you know, there was like the Silk Road and uh, the spice trade, you know, that went from um, Asia through the Middle East, throughout Europe, and then age of exploration, you know, late, teen, late 1400s, 1500s, when we really started venturing around the world in a, a new way, but for a long period in our history, even people who were gatherer hunters, they still held to a specific bioregion. We didn't travel very far. Now, since we travel so often, we're in this globalized society, um, our, and a very mixed society, a displaced refugee society, people's sense of place has changed a lot. And so, you know, as we move into these new bioregions, we take with us certain plants, we take with us certain knowledge, and then we try to like apply it to the bioregion that we're in, in in an attempt to, to, you know, assimilate, naturalize ourselves to a new sense of place. And with bioregional medicine, since we are this global society now, and, you know, there's commodities, commodities have, you know, spices and herbs have always been, been commodities, but things now on the global scale are, are pretty, um, there, there's a lot of exploitation of life, you know, whether it's animals or humans or plants. And, and people feeling this disconnect with current modern medicine um, in that it treats disease. It doesn't treat 
people. It's not offering people real solutions for well-being based on the individual need, you know. And so people are going back to the plant medicines. But what is happening is that the plant medicines aren't being treated as living, vital beings that are experiencing our body as we're experiencing them. And we're treating them just like a, a conventional pharmaceutical. You know, we're, we're looking for panaceas. We're looking for the next wave of something popular that's going to save us, you know. And, um, and so when we talk about like bioregional appropriateness, it's like, don't just look to the outside, to the to the superfood, to the, the panacea, you know, whatever's hot on the market right now, whether it was, you know, I've seen the trends because I was in natural food industry for a long time. It was like acai and then it was goji berries and then it was golden berries and it was cacao and it was maca and now it's moringa and suma and like whatever, you know, popular thing, ashwagandha, chaga, all these things that people think are going to save their lives. And what it's doing though is it's exploiting these plants and mushrooms. And what people aren't realizing is that some plants and mushrooms, specifically one like chaga, is going to be extinct if we keep treating it the way that we're treating it. Because in the wild, and this is about the bioregional appropriateness, it's like looking like how much of it is in and available in the bioregion. You know, or something like chaga reproduces for 24 hours a year. It only populates one in every 20,000 birch trees in the wild, um, with deforestation, with climate change, like with disease, we're also losing these kinds of trees. And so chaga in the wild, at the rate that people are taking it, you know, it can't meet the demand pretty much. And so, you know, people are just looking at this, like, again, this commodity this on this global level that's being sold and trying to just eat it up and think it's going to save them without actually looking at what is the relationship with this plant or mushroom in its own landscape. And what is its own life? And so for me, bioregional medicine is, you know, and I don't use plants just for my bioregion in, in my practice and my apothecary. I definitely will purchase plants from other places, but I really focus on learning from my landscape and working with the plants that are here in my landscape and working exclusively with, you know, how much do I actually need of this other living vital being, you know, each, each year based on my personal practice. And Am I taking it in in a way that's um, ethnobotanically relevant? Like, have we, you know, with certain things, uh, just an example would be, you know, like echinacea, for example. You know, like if you're going to be taking that plant, um, there's certain parts of it to be used and how much of it to be used. And, you know, you'll see research saying that it works or it doesn't work because the research saying that it doesn't work will be using the wrong part of the plant. And so that's like when we look at, when I say like go back into ethnobotany, like how have people always worked with this plant and how has it always been a part of the life of the people and the plant and the other plants and the animals and the fungi and the soil conditions within this bioregion to really understand like what is the life behind this. It's not just a set of constituents that are anti-cancer or antioxidant or whatever, you know, like that's a very reductionist perspective. It's, it's more when I think about bioregional appropriateness, it's like what is this life? And how is this life and my, my life interconnected right now to make both of us thrive and survive and adapt to this changing climate? Do you think that there's an element of the placebo effect happening where people are like, oh, this is going to fix everything. And they take it and they're like, I feel so much better. Oh, and they don't. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Especially with chaga mushrooms. So people are buying chaga in powder. They're putting it in their smoothies. And it's like, okay. 
one, that's not how mushrooms work. Like they need to be decocted, especially like chaga needs to be decocted for 24 hours. We can't even process their cells. Even when they're broken down into powders, it's really hard. We're pretty much just pooping it out. Um, our bodies aren't absorbing it. Their cell walls are very, very hard um, to break down and need to be often double extracted. And so there is definite placebo effect. I mean, we, we believe we're, we believe in panaceas. We like that abstract concept of the heal all of the miracle pill, you know, because we're kind of lazy and we don't like to do the work, <laughs> you know, and, and we think that there's one thing out there that's going to heal us. And, um, and that healing is even fully, you know, possible and, and achieved. And, you know, this is what I said to you when we were offline was like, I don't believe healing is ever achieved because it's like once you hit a certain place and something else happens, it's like we're, and this is a little fatalist, but in some ways we're, you know, on this slow road, this slow decay back, back to soil um, in our lives. And so we just want to alleviate pain as much as we can. And we want to be vital and we want to enjoy life. And, you know, we look for these heal-alls, these beliefs that are like, oh, this is going to heal me. This is going to make me great. And, the reality is that like nothing can do that and that it's just so, so many levels, you know, to what wellness is, um, you know, mentally, spiritually, psychologically, emotionally and everything. And, and the belief system, the pan of behind the panacea and um, not the panacea, I'm sorry, the placebo and, and placebo just means like to, to offer comfort to. And so it brings people a peace of mind that they're doing something for themselves and that's really strong, really strong medicine because it, it's belief. Um, so, you know, just imagine like if we could get people without, you know, exploitation of <laughs> plants and mushrooms and animals just to believe that their wellness is an option for them, you know, would, would be a miracle. <laughs> yeah, that would be incredible. I mean, I'm, I'm reading this book called um, Becoming Supernatural by Dr. Joe Dispenza. And he talks all about the science of our invisible energy field around us and, you know, basically utilizing the placebo effect or rather just believing in the fact that we can find that balance again. You know, I'm, I'm, I didn't want to use the word heal ourselves because like you said, there is no, you know, we can be in balance, but very easily we can also slip out of balance. And so I was just experimenting with it the other day. I'm, I went cold turkey, no coffee <laughs> over the past few days. And so I've been experiencing that nice, dull, lingering headache all day. And so I laid down and I just started telling myself that I'm happy and healthy. I'm happy and healthy. I'm happy and healthy. And I just felt tingles all over my body. And it was like, I just wished it away in a way because I was believing that I could make it go away. You know, just like believing that this plant is going to heal me. And it's just so interesting to see that people are we're constantly buying into the fact that healing is something that's out there healing is something that's outside of us mm -hmm, mm -hmm. well we that whole like idea of outside of us you know we everyone even myself you know it's like i would love for someone to tell me the answers <laughs> oh my <laughs> tell gosh me, yeah. tell, tell me what to do and tell me the end of the story and you know hold my hand through it all and and be the savior you know they're that's also something that's been very indoctrinated into us is this concept of like one savior. And I think 
you know, we have to realize that it is all within and that we do have the capacity to, to, to bring ourselves into states of balance and to heal ourselves at various times in our lives and to understand that like, you know, like we may get sick again. We may, tragedy happens. It's, we're not immune to it. And whether it's natural disaster or a death in your family or a loss of your job or a loss of a loved one or, you know, a, a diagnosis of some disease, it's, you know, or whatever, it's, it's gonna, ha- it, it's gonna happen, you know, like none of us are immune to that. I mean, you know, it happens in the animal kingdom and the plant kingdom and the fungi kingdom, bacterias evolve, they kill each other, they multiply, they don't survive, you know, it's, it's a big part of life. And I think, you know, like that's, that's a big part of it for me is trying to, at least with my work is try to help people understand that they are interconnected and that they're, they're fragile and they're special and, you know, and that we, we aren't at the top We're we're in the web together with everything else. And I think when we realize that it really, you know, brings a humbling experience, but also at a very empowering perspective on who we are in relation to everything else, you know? Yeah. And releasing our attachment to the fact that we feel like we are at the top of the food chain. Mm-hmm. Cause if we feel like we're at the top, then we feel like we can do whatever we want, but exactly noticing that that's not the case. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Um, One of the other things that you mentioned that you wanted to talk about was off-grid living. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. What are, so, I mean, obviously that's a really big topic, but what are some things within off-grid living that you've noticed are just that you love, that you have, that you found struggles with, that you want to share? Sure. So I moved to Costa Rica in late 2009 um, to live off the grid at uh, my my farm, Puntuona Center, for regenerative design and botanical studies. <laughs> it's on the southern Caribbean coast of Costa Rica in a wildlife refuge. And so when I first moved there, my biggest challenge was, <laughs> I called it my Cinderella complex. <laughs> so it was like constantly cleaning, constantly trying to fight off the jungle and be in a uh, sterile place. I came from upstate New York. Before that, I was in Philadelphia living for eight years. And, you know, when you're in cities, you you do think you're at the top. It's anthropocentric, humans on the top, everything revolves around us, you know. And um, and so when you get into nature you and you're off the grid or you're out there and you haven't had many experiences like that yet, maybe just like philosophical perspectives on it, you still think you're at the top. And so when I got there, I tried really hard to I mean, I embraced the jungle right away. I loved animals. I love, I love nature. I love being on the beach. I love plants. But I was still trying to make, make it my space first. Um, and so the biggest uh, aha moment and, and surrender for me was actually surrendering to the jungle and that this is a really dynamic, very biodiverse, super adaptive place that I'm just a part of. And I can't change the fact that you know this that this is also habitat for billions of other life forms all around me right now whether it's little critters in the soil or it was you know the little mexican mouse possum that moved into my purse or to like, you know to the snake you know that is you know a deadly poisonous snake but not there hunting me or not there to hurt me it doesn't have any legs or arms and so all it has is its teeth to protect itself to 
you know, the, the molds and the fungus that it's, it's deep tropics, you know, and so letting go of a lot of material possession as well. Not to say that I've let go of material possessions. Like I'm a Taurus moon. Like I love my comforts and my, <laughs> and my things. Um, but it was a lot of just like letting go of like, okay, this isn't permanent. Like this doesn't define me. I don't need these things anymore. And um, I can, it really helped me to learn how to let go, you know, and become uh, more aware of the concept of like non-attachment, you know, not detachment, but non-attachment. And even to people, because it's a very transient place, people come for max a year, maybe they stay six months, maybe they stay a week or two weeks, whether they're in a course or they're volunteering. And so it was also, you know, just this ability to um, have non-attachment to the people that came in and out of my life, my life, and just looking at, you know, how do we affect each other and, and what is the, the, the changeability, you know, that like everything we touch changes and everything is in a constant state of change. You know, we're never static, our own bodies every day, we're someone different and, the environment around you, the plants have changed, something fell down, the soil changed because of the water conditions or because of this and that. And so it's been this real, uh, really deep lesson for me living off the grid. Yeah. In, in non-attachment and also in just in being in a complete state of, of awe of the miracle of life and how beautiful it is and how, you know, and how we all have our, our moments and the niches that we fill within the bigger ecosystem. And, you know, I've had a lot of animals die in my hands and have felt like the last heartbeats of these little beings whose lives are so precious, you know. And so, yeah, off the grid living is, has taught me. <clears throat> it's been the greatest school for me, actually, living at Punta Mona. And every day I'm there just observing and watching and learning so, so much. Yeah, you brought up a really good well, you brought up several really good points. I also live in, I live in an open air kitchen. Uh, mm-hmm. The space where I'm sitting right now is, is our downstairs and it's just a bedroom bathroom, but upstairs open air kitchen. And so, yeah, getting used to the fact that, okay, it's wet. So frogs are going to want to hang out <laughs> and yeah. just accepting that they're going to be there every single morning, not letting it scare me and just <laughs> accepting that we are part of this ecosystem. But also it's, it's one of my dreams, big big dreams to own a retreat center one day and to operate it. Yeah. And, but I've worked at a few retreat centers at this point and you did bring up a good point. And one of the hardest part is attaching to, if you attach to the guests and they're only there a week or a few weeks and then they leave and you've got to learn a whole new set of names and that is very draining. And so my question for you is what, how have you balanced that? Mm, it's hard. It's really hard because there's some people that you just really fall in love with, that you go so deep with, that you become really, you know, you have soul recognition, you're you're there for a reason together. And um it's been really hard. You know, the first first few years I used to cry a lot when I would say goodbye to people and and now goodbyes are just you know, maybe it's because of social media as well. I'm I'm able to like see the people that I really love and see their their joys, see their sorrows and their kids and their lives and all that kind of stuff. So I'm actually really grateful to social media <laughs> because of it. Um, but, you know, I, I think, I don't, I don't know. I, I think I just started to become desensitized a little bit to goodbyes and that they happen all the time. And, you know, there are definitely times where I still cry and 
I'm thinking to myself, I might not ever see you again. And I love you. And we had these amazing, this amazing time together and you always live in my heart. And, um, and I do think it is true that even though we might not see someone all the time, like they are alive within us um, and the experiences that we, we shared together. And so, I mean, it's, it's just taken time. And, and like I said, it also could be that I've just become a little desensitized because I've gone through it so much, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of like you just have to keep practicing it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Keep practicing goodbye. Yeah. And <laughs> the non-attachment because then, and you never know. That's the beautiful thing about life too, is that you just never know where people will pop up again. And the world is a small place. It really is. Mm-hmm. And in our communities and the people that, you know, come through Punta Mona or that come through Envision, we're, we have all similar trajectory in some way. You know, we care about similar things. And so we're bound to find each other in different ways again, if it's supposed to be, you know? Right. Absolutely. So mm-hmm. I only, I think I might've only put 30 minutes on the calendar, <laughs> but I still have more questions. If you have more time, I would yeah, love Yeah, I have more time. Okay. Awesome. Um, so earlier you brought up your experience and your journey with in vitro mm-hmm. and, um, I would love it if you could elaborate on that and kind of speak to women who might be going through that and um, just give them any sort of insights or advice that you might have from your own experience. Yeah, so um, I was married for 10 years, beautiful man. And, um, you know, we weren't, we weren't getting pregnant. And it was this whole thing of like, okay, well, what, what's up, you know, and doing herbs and talking to people and going to conventional doctors, specialists, and, and through the whole process of a few years, uh, figuring out some really interesting things about myself, um, which is a reality for a lot of women who might not know, but there is this gene called the motherfucker, <laughs> the MTHFR, and it's a mutation that's one of the leading causes of miscarriage. Um, a lot of conventional doctors, at least in the U.S., don't acknowledge it, as being an issue, um, but a lot of doctors outside of the U.S., medical doctors, uh, do acknowledge that this this is an issue. It can lead to heart disease. There's there's various things, and so um, and and supposedly it's more than fifteen percent of our population that carries this genetic uh, mutation. Not really understood why it happens. Uh, could be um, possible exposure, whether it's to heavy, uh, heavy metals or chemicals in our environment, uh, could possibly be genetic. There's, uh, again, not a whole lot understood about it. And so there's that. And then throughout the journey as well, found out about another autoimmune thing called folate receptor antibodies. There's only one lab in the entire United States that even tests for it. And that was discovered because of um, autistic children and this link with heavy metal exposure. So there's a few layers there. And like going through this process of trying to conceive, I learned a lot about my own health um, and my own, um, yeah, just how, how to take care of myself. And, and my path to herbalism started also because of some reproductive struggles and having irregular periods and infections and all this kind of stuff and you know figuring out about dairy allergies and how to how to take care of myself so that was really my my door into the the healing path and working with medicinal plants when I was 18 19 years old um and so my husband and I at the time um because you know we weren't conceiving and we really wanted to have a baby together and it's kind of some of the expectations of marriage and it's also expectations of society is that that's what you do when you get married. And we really did want, want that. 
Um, and so I decided to, even though I, I didn't really, I never felt right about doing in vitro. It, it always felt really scary to me. It always felt kind of wrong, like having to push my body into a place that it might not want to go. And, and so I did um, IVF. I did two IUIs, which is the intrauterine insemination. And I did three IVFs and it was horrible, actually. Um, I wouldn't recommend the process to anybody. You know, it's all personal, of course, and, and what you decide to do with your own body and what you want to do with your family. But it was really, really hard. It's um, really intense hormone surges with shots and, and then putting your body, you know, you have to go into anesthesia and then they kind of a traumatic experience of uh, the harvesting of eggs where it's like a giant needle up through the wall of the, the vagina, like um, directly into your, e into your ovaries, like a, sucking your eggs out. And then, you know, actually I've, I've, I've seen, you know, my embryos and, and, and like photos in a lab and everything. And then having implantation and then going through the process of it not working. And so it brings up, you know, this, this really deep sense of uh, longing and um, feeling like missing something that you never had really, really hard, you know, and I was doing TCM, traditional Chinese medicine, herbs, like to regulate my period, to support my body. I did acupuncture majorly after um, my final IVF treatment and acupuncture brought me back. I was going every five days for about six months and it really helped me to recoup my vitality. And, you know, like speaking to, I, I talk about it a lot and it's, it's a mo not a lot, but often for a while I was talking about it more, more, um, but a lot of women, we, it, it's very shameful, you know, because of societal expectation and relationship expectation. It, it leaves you with this sense of feeling, you know, incapable or not enough. And so it's really devastating, I think, emotionally to a lot of women and, and a lot of shame because it's a part of like the expectation that we're supposed to be able to have children. And it's also really changed my, my perception on um, family and, and what relationships are and what unites people together and that it doesn't have to just be bloodlines and children and, and all of that. And so, you know, I decided, um, I didn't want to continue with it. It, it was just, it, it broke up my, it was a piece of what actually broke up my marriage, which also happens to a lot of couples. It's very, very stressful. People grieve in their own ways. And, um, you know, now where I'm at with it has just been that acceptance about, again, yeah, like what family is and what soul tribe is and, um, you know, what, what it is to even be a mother and really think about motherhood in a whole a whole new way and knowing that I am actually an amazing mother to a lot of people and that you know it doesn't mean that it has to be your own child that you carry and would love to still carry a baby and experience that but um and if it happens you know it would be a total miracle that I'm open to but at the same time like there's so many kids in the world who don't have a home who I would just offer the most amazing life too. And so, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm open to various things and coming to peace with the fact that, um, you know, it, it might not be achieved. So, I feel like anyone who has you as a mother is going to be the most lucky human out there. <laughs> I think so too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. Yeah. 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 And I mean, and my, my biggest thing for women who are considering it is 
it's hard, you know, it's really, really hard on your body. And, and we don't know what the long-term results are of hormone therapy like that. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I, I, I just encourage women, it's your personal choice, but, but really know that it's going to work you in ways that you can't even imagine. And so being really mentally prepared and having um, a really good support network in place and to not be ashamed, you know, like talk about it because it's, you know, when you hold it inside, you don't tell anybody and, and you're ashamed about it, it, it just makes it all that much harder, mm-hmm. you know? It starts to amplify it. Yeah. And to do integrative therapy. Like if you're going to do it, like really don't, don't be afraid to also take herbs and to watch your diet. And I highly recommend acupuncture before, during, and after if, if you decide to go through it. Mm-hmm. Well, that, that makes me very hopeful as well because that's exactly what I want to learn in acupuncture is eventually get my doctorate and specifically women focused. Mm. Um, yeah. Women and Good. women's health. Yeah. So, cause I've had my own battles with, um, with reproductive health as well. And so an acupuncture was the, 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 the thing for me, it was exactly what I needed. Um, both acupuncture and combined with herbs as well. So um, I was like, if if this can work for me, I know it can work for other women as well. So I'm glad to hear that it works for you. Yeah, for sure. And, and, you know, it's, it comes up a lot for me is the concept of the wounded healer and how, you know, these struggles that we go through with our own health, it just makes us, I think for those of us walking this path and in service, it just, I think it makes us more helpful to other people, you Mm -hmm. know, able to, identify and empathize and and share experiences because you end up doing so much research and you end up spending so much time on yourself that you end up coming out of some of these uh, physical and mental traumas with a really strong toolbox (laughs) to offer to other people, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. So you are one of the co-founders, co-producers. What's the exact title? (laughs) All right, perfect. So Envision Fest is in a way one of your children. For sure. <laughs> Can so you we're tell going us? into our, what are we, 2011, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 18. yeah, this is our ninth year. Wow. Um, yeah, that's pretty cool. <laughs> Can you tell me about um, the inception and what, like where the idea came uh, from, all that good well, stuff? Well, big part of the idea, so the, the few core people, which was my um, – my former husband, still my husband, we're still married, actually, that's my husband, um, and some friends of our uh, um, ours, we were all burners, so going to Burning Man and identifying as, as burners and really loving that experience and wanting people in Costa Rica because we had all lived, we'd all been living here. Uh, my husband in particular has been here now for 25 years, one of our other co-founders who's no longer with the company uh, for many years now, but was one of the co-founders. He had been in Costa Rica just as long as Steven. Um, You know, he and his wife got together like a little bit before we did. Um, And then a a few other people who were like in festival production scene in Colorado. Uh, We just wanted to bring an event that was inspired by the pillars of Burning Man, which is, you know, radical self-reliance, participation, leave no trace, um, really bringing in the, the allowance to let your freak flag fly proudly <laughs> and, um, and bring, just bring it closer to home, you know, cause Costa Rica is just such an, an, an amazing country. It's super diverse. It's 
beautiful. It's safe. It's just, it's green. It's everything. I love Costa Rica so much. And, and so we just wanted people to experience what we were experiencing on the playa here. Um, so it started out, you know, we were all doing different things like at the very beginning. Um, the very first envision was our friend's backyard in Dominical and um, at a place called Danyasa. Now it was called Bamboo Yoga Play then um, with this beautiful woman, Sophia Tom and her husband, Brendan Jaffer. And, you know, they hosted it there and and it was like seven or 800 people. It was this really fun event. You know, I was like working box office. I was working in hospitality. We were all doing everything. You know, it was one of those things where our organization was low, our creative vision was high. And so we just hustled. Um, as we went through the years, we started to, you know, kind of see like, okay, like what niche can you fill? What niche can you fill? What are your skill sets? And bringing more people on. And so we jumped, you know, from being seven, 800 person event for the first one to this next year being like two, 2,500, something like that. Year after that, we were at 3,000. And just this steady growth of people being like, wow, Costa Rica is cool. It's the middle of winter. Um, we really upped our production game. We, you know, like with our stages, with the, the design of our stages, with the quality of talent coming through. And it was just one of the things that we've, we've been very passionate about is, is the art behind it. Um, I could say like our core team, we're all very creative and we were lacking in our business sense for a while. And so, um, you know, building up our team, you know, whether it's from the financial perspective, from human resources and, you know, we're not a small event. We're not a huge event. We're about 7,000 people on site, uh, pretty diverse, you know, like 40 plus countries represented, um, pretty uh, Latino based, but you know, Europeans and, uh, and all that, some folks in the Middle East and not a lot of people from Asia come, but some, and, um, you know, we, yeah, I mean, our, our goal with Envision, you know, with our eight pillars, like some of the foundation is in permaculture and we're really dedicated to being a very low waste festival, um, to showing that mass gathering doesn't have to be destructive, you know, and, and work in a way that's regenerative and, uh, not damaging to our ecosystem, you know, so whether it's like using biodiesel or building with bamboo or, you know, composting at one point we did actually have composting toilets, but we had to, we had permission from the local municipality, but then the uh, Ministerio de Salud, which is like the health department of Costa Rica wasn't so stoked on it. So unfortunately we had to go back to the porta potty thing, but you know, otherwise we also work with, local farmers and to, to make sure our produce is organic. We're very impassioned about what kinds of vendors we have, making sure that things are ethically sourced and, you know, fair trade models and organic food and wellness initiatives, like really trying to focus on, you know, that it's not just a party, that there's something more happening here right now. And, you know, in, in the community building and in, in people having outlets for, adult alternative education that's, you know, focused on community and wellness and creative process and, and all that. So where did, did when you first started at, um, at Danyasa and you just had a few, a few, you know, a few hundred people there, did you envision that it would grow this big? No pun intended. I don't know. I don't know what we were thinking really, (laughs) what we wanted to see happen. It's really just, it moved really fast, you know, each, each year and the production and the passion and the dramas behind it and everything. And I don't, I don't know what we envisioned. (laughs) 
originally. I think the vision wasn't clearly uh, created yet mm. when, we, when we were just starting, you know. I feel like that's, I mean, that's how I feel about everything that I'm working towards right now is I, I have a hunch and I have a drive and a fire within me, but I don't necessarily know exactly where it's going to end up, but I'm open to surrendering to something bigger than myself, what it can be. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's a, it's been a passion project and a service project to our community and it's a business too, you know, like don't, I'm not going to be naive about that, that it is, you know, a, a lot of work financially to, to make it happen. And people don't like to hear that, you know, they hate being like, Oh, you care about it is the money. And it's like, give me a break. Like, how do you think these things happen? And, um, you know, so it's also about this concept in permaculture of transitional ethics, you know, and like going from one paradigm or belief agreed upon belief system into another agreed upon belief system. And, you know, part of that is, is with like that radical participation and envision like, well, well, who are we all within this ecosystem right now? Not just the ecosystem in relationship to the earth, but this eco just means home. And so it's a pop-up home for a moment and we're an experimenting in, in community. And that's what really has me curious right now. Um, and actually a panel that I'm going to be curating and envision this year is about, you know, festivals of the future and like, what is the purpose behind mass gathering? Like when we were tribal peoples and we would come together at various holidays, you know, celebrating natural phenomenon, we came together for what? For skill sharing, to share music, to share food, to find your lover, for your kids to learn, for, you know, that's, that's why we came together. And then you would go back to your relative locations, your community, wherever you were living, and, and how were you changed by that mass gathering? And so, you know, as we're trying to shift paradigm, um, which is such a funny overused word in our new age community, but again, like trying to shift our agreed upon belief systems. It's like when you leave these alternate realities that we curate uh, over a weekend, you know, like how, how are you changed and how are you going to go back to your life wherever it is, whether it's nomadic or whether it's nested somewhere, rooted somewhere, and, and how are you going to try to make things different? And how are you going to live different? How are you going to treat people different? And how are you going to reflect on your own life and, and what value systems are in your own life? And not just going back to like your stupid default world job because it's what you're supposed to do because you have to make money to hustle to this and that. You know, it's like we, we need to collectively change that agreed upon belief system and that's how life is. And so it's just what, what I've been thinking about a lot lately with Envision behind like what is the purpose and what's my purpose behind this? You know, like, yeah, it's a great party and the stages are amazing. And what I do is I curate all of our education. I work with safety. I curate the, um, the herbal clinic first aid training. And because one of my things I'm passionate about is having herbalists on the ground, like ready to work, ready to show up in their communities um, for relief, for disaster work, whatever it is. Um, as well as offering people like just different perspectives on, on education, you know? And so, yeah, that's a big thing for me right now with Envision is what is the bigger picture work that, that I'm trying to offer to the world and that we are offering to the world with this like amazing platform that we have right now and, and the strength of the brand, you know, and, and people and what they, how they see us and how they feel about us and how we hopefully can, you know, be a seed of change for them. So do you have, um, you know, Envision Fest is coming up in a few short weeks. 
it feels mm-hmm. like, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, and this is the ninth year of it, right? Mm-hmm. Is that what you said? And so. 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19. Yep. <laughs> it's always kind of, see, those, those types of counting is always kind of um, trippy because you typically we think, oh, it's the second year after the second time that it happens, but the first year is the first time that it happens. So you have to <laughs> go count that first one. Mm-hmm. Um, what, I mean, do you, do, now that you guys have been doing this for a while, do you have um, any plans for even bigger growth or it, are you guys happy with the size of it? Um, where are you guys at with that? Yeah, I mean, right now the size is manageable uh, for the land that we have. Um, some of the things that we've been talking about doing are installations at other events, specifically with the Village Witches. And so the Village Witches is like my sub-brand within Envision. And what it encompasses is the herbal clinic, the first aid, which works uh, in ta- alongside the conventional medic and the Zendo, which is psychedelic harm reduction. Um, and so it, it's an experiment in integrative acute care, which is awesome. And we're doing our fourth year with the training on that. And the herbalists that go into it and then come out of it, they're just so, so far ahead of their peers at that. They, they just skyrocket ahead and their understanding of formulation and acute care. And um, it's a quick diagnosis. You know, we're not doing chronic care or constitutional formulation, you know, like we're really offering relief to people. And so that is my biggest baby within the festival that I love so much. Um, and then the Village Witches also is uh, an educational platform offering traditional and alternative medicine workshops, um, healing workshops. And then the Healing Sanctuary, which is, you know, body work and energy work and stuff. And then the Elixir Bar, the Herbal Elixir Bar, which is focused on offering people uh, the concept of conscious consumption. We like hanging out at bars, you know, it's a part of our culture. It's where we, what we do, we go to like drink and socialize, but it, it means that like, you don't have to get wrecked, you know, like that we can imbibe other plants that, you know, are ethically sourced that are mindfully made, like really, really tailored to have flavor and an energetic behind them that, you know, is, striving towards wellness while also, you know, giving you a a lift that you can go out all night and dance and and have fun at the party, but wake up the next day, like feeling refreshed and feeling energized and not feeling hungover and feeling beat up or not able to even remember what you talked about the night before. Um, And so that's what the village, which is the whole kind of thing is we, we did a installation at the Oregon eclipse, the global eclipse festival that happened a few years ago. And, um, and it was awesome. It was such a safe haven for people. It was such a community experience. And so some of the things we're looking for with Envision are doing other kind of pop-up installations and collaborating with other events that way. Um, one of the things that I really want to bring to the festival as an organization is uh, our relief work that we do. And so with the Village Witches and training, with the Herbal Clinic, excuse me, and, and training people, you know, we can't just wait around for disasters to happen to get practice. It's like herbalism is a science, an art, a craft, and a practice. And if you're not practicing, then you don't have the embodied experience to really help and to criti- critically think about the plants and about the people and, and how to bring relief. And so, you know, doing these trainings um, at mass gatherings is such a cool way to, to learn about relief work and and working with herbalism and we just did it at the cosmic convergence um, which is another small festival in lake atitlan in guatemala and it was just 
it was just amazing, you know? And so that's my goal is with Envision is to get more people trained on the ground so we can show up for relief efforts as, as needed. That's awesome. I think that's super yeah. cool. Yeah, I'm, I'm really passionate about it, you know, and whether it means starting a 501c3, which sounds like a major headache, but it's a way that we'd be able to, <laughs> you know, just take donations because um, herbalism, it's like we give it away for free. You know, it's medical, it's healthcare, and we believe in accessible healthcare. And with relief work, you're not sitting there asking people for money before <laughs> before you treat them. You know, that's it's a really ugly system that, that exists in the United States where it's like you can't even get care in an emergency situation if you don't have insurance. And so, you know, we do have to ask for support from, from our community, whether it's in the form of, you know, uh, financial donation or medicine donation or supplies or whatever it is. And we did some relief work, me and my, my uh, colleague, partner, best friend, uh, Laura Palmieri, she's Guatemalan and part of the Fungi Academy in, in Guatemala and an amazing herbalist. And she's been doing the clinic for the past four years She's one of the main leads there. And, um, and so the Volcan de Fuego like went off and, and destroyed a lot of people's homes and just displaced thousands of people in Guatemala this past June, you know, and we were able to rally and, and show up. We had all this equipment that we had unmasked like the past few years from the Envision clinics, like our own medicines that we made. And I put a call out to my lo- my network, you know, and, and we raised, I think like six or $7,000 in about 10 days. And we were able just to show up for people. And it was the only time I'd ever asked for money for my community. Um, and it was just, I couldn't believe like from $10 donations to like $500 donations. It was amazing. And, and we were able to do, do the medicine work, you know, and offer, offer relief to people in a really profound way. And that to me is, is just our biggest give back and the community service that we can do as herbalists. You know, it's like, I'm, I'm an herbal educator. I, I teach courses. I train formal courses. I train people in herbal medicine. I do, you know, long-term constitutional consultations that I charge for, but it's like this relief work is my give back. And, and I love it. Absolutely. So is there any other things that you want to talk about, share, discuss anything like that? Oh, I mean, there's so much. I know. (laughs) (laughs) We sit on the phone all day. I know. Um, (laughs) Um, I don't know. I mean, I would say for, you know, for the listeners out there, if you're interested in herbalism in particular, um, one of the things I really encourage you to do is go to conferences locally, um, bioregionally, and and find the teachers that you really resonate with. And I would also suggest to people, if you're interested in herbal medicine, to get outside and, and be with living plants, regardless if they're medicines for your human body or not, but really connect with them as living beings. And you know, don't, don't treat them just as tinctures and teas and pills. And, you know, we have to really acknowledge them as living vital beings that are, have given their lives for, for us. And so, um, you know, there's lots of ways to learn and to be just really discerning on in internet information and everything. And, and if you do want to do research, my favorite uh, platforms for research is uh, the American Botanical Council, which is herbalgram.org, and they have all the best research on medicinal plants. So always start there if you're wanting to research and look to people who are practicing. There's a lot of people who are just reiterating uh, knowledge that they've learned through books or through people saying what works, but you have to have the critical stance on it because there's some plants that you know will work for one person that won't work for another. And and it helps you to understand the bigger, bigger picture, you know, the holistic picture between our human bodies and the plant bodies. And 
So, um, you know, and if people are interested in learning more, like from me, whatever, do a little plug, um, you know, village witch, there's, I'm not the only village witch out there. It's a copy lefted thing. There's village witches in every village. <laughs> um, but you can find me, you know, I do like the whole little Instagram thing. And then I teach a really amazing course in Simona at my farm. And then we're going to be doing one in Guatemala in November called permaculture for the herbalists path. It's a 28 day course that focuses on whole systems ecology. So our, our human body relationship with the natural world and, and looking at uh, a pretty global materia medica or the plants that we study and focusing on energetics and formulations and cultivation and plants in the landscape and regenerative agriculture. It's a really beautiful, very comprehensive course. To learn more about Sarah's village witchcraft practices and classes and all of the awesome things she's doing with the village witches head on over to villagewitch.org if you're interested in learning more about the punta mona center head on over to punta p-u-n-t-a mona m-o-n-a dot org So thank you guys so much for staying until the end. I really, really appreciate um, the fact that you're even interested in what's going to happen next with Wonderwell. So long story short, I have been getting a lot of signs in the universe that it is time to change the name of Wanderwell. I opened Wanderwell Academy to house my courses and coaching programs. And as I was expanding with that name, I started to realize that I had been warned about some things when starting a business, when becoming an entrepreneur, and that is just to make sure that you're doing everything legally, right? So when it comes to the name Wander Well, there is already a trademark that exists for somebody else who has that brand name. Granted, there's all these rules about what makes a brand different and how we're offering different things, but the more I expand on that name and the more that I continue to put energy towards that name and that branding, the closer and closer I feel myself getting to one of those sticky situations. And so I have decided to change the name of this podcast. I have no idea what to name it at all. I mean, I'm, I've created, I've journaled about it. I've listed about it. I've, you know, been super creative and super specific and really niching down and trying to get really clear to my audience who I am and what I'm about. So that's where I'm at right now. And so if you are listening to this podcast and you have enjoyed any of the, these podcast episodes, including this one, since we started a year ago, since I started a year ago, it's really just me, you guys, it's just me behind a microphone right now. So if you have any sort of interest in the future of this podcast, I would just be interested to know uh, what I should call it, you know, and and right now it's just going to be, it's going to be on wanderwellpodcast.com until I make the switch over to um, back to katiejohnita.com and get all of that up and going. So that switch is imminent and it is quickly approaching. And I would love your input on what we should call this podcast going forward. What do you love about this podcast? What do you need from me? How can I be of service? Tell me, tell me, tell me. I'm going to post about this on Instagram as well. So um, look out for that post. It will be soon within the next 
few hours probably after I post this episode. So if you're listening to this, then you can probably go ahead and vote, make a suggestion, um, just share some good energy, good vibes. Would love it if you guys hopped on over to my Instagram account at Katie Johnita. That's K-A-T-I-E-J-O-H-N-I-T-A. That is my my name, Catherine Jennita Jones. So um, find me on Instagram. Give me some some feedback. Give me some insights. Uh, tell me what you want more of, and I'd greatly appreciate it. Have a great day, you guys. Mwah. Music for this episode can be found on soundstripe.com.